You listen to 247 Real Talk. This is your host, Julian Perry. My guest for tonight's episode had to reschedule. So I'm going to fill in this spot with another installment of In The News. I'll be right back. So good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to another episode of 247 Real Talk. It is Wednesday, October 13th, about 20 minutes before the midnight hour. And like I mentioned in my intro, my guest for this episode asked to reschedule at the last moment. And so I'm bringing you another installment of In the News, which is basically... Uh, my series where I uh, discuss my perspective on different things in the news. Um, since my desk, my guest rescheduled at the last moment, I'm a little ill-prepared, so it will not be a long episode, but there are a few things on my mind I'd like to discuss, and I'm you know sort of looking through the news. Um, I had in my mind what I was going to start off with tonight, but then as I'm going through breaking news, you know, something came across... Uh, my phone from New York Daily News, and uh, I wanted to share this with you. And you know, maybe in the email or something, you'll let me know what you think. But we have been living in a culture for the last couple of years where the movement, the Black Lives Matters movement, has been um, engulfing the world, so to speak. And um, in addition to Black Lives, it's you know, it's also been about a lot of different aspects of uh, equality and getting rid of systemic racism and um, the fear that certain people in the black community have of police officers, et cetera. Now I've mentioned many times on this, um, on this podcast that I have a lot of family and, you know, friends uh, who are police officers. And I'm not just saying that because, you know, there, there's that relationship, but they're good people. I mean, the things that they tell me they do and the way that they help. And I know their mannerism, their temperament, you know, I have no problems, you know, calling them really good people. But, you know, in every single, you know, the thing that, the thing that is hard to get over to every or any category of anyone, law enforcement or other, is that when you've got thousands of people who are in that line of work, like every, uh, everything else in this world, they're good people and they're bad people. There's good cops and they're bad cops. And as I'm looking through breaking news tonight, I'm saying, you know, when we talk about fear, and this is for not even just um, black people, I think this are people of color, this is for anyone. You know, if you get pulled over by a police officer or, you, or in some situation where a police officer is called, you're not supposed to have this inherent fear, but, you know, many people have spoken about this fear and, and others wonder why. Well, this story tonight says, headline, off-duty NYPD cop shoots her ex-girlfriend and kills her ex-new love interest. Now, here's a police officer who's been in the force since 2016, so we're talking about five years. Um, I, I'm not going to go into the details of the story to that level. Basically, she went wherever, shot an, her ex-girlfriend, and killed uh, the ex's, the ex-mind, this is an ex-girlfriend now, new love interest. 
Um, shot them both in the in the torso. The ex's new love interest was, you know, they say blasted several times. And then the the officer apparently was at the hospital and calmly confessed. Now, you know, I want people just to recognize, I'm not going to stay on this topic long, but if someone who has been sworn to duty as a police officer has that kind of rage in them, capable of that kind of rage, knowing fully well, I know, I mean, you know, it's, it's a jilted lover or whatever the case may be, but still, I'm sure police officers find themselves in much more difficult situations. And to think that, you know, here is someone who lawfully is allowed to carry a firearm, and this is the act that they carry out. How should I feel, or you feel, anyone, doesn't matter um, what, what race you are, I'm not even going to bring in the race here. And, and just for the record, the police officer and, and the love interest and all that, none of these people were black. But the point I'm making is that if someone is capable of that instant rage or whatever, or, or premeditated rage, how am I supposed to feel? How are you supposed to feel if that turns out to be the officer you face in a, in a difficult situation that maybe you're trying to explain? And if you were able to explain it, it probably would make sense, but you know, you've already got this inherent fear and then, you know, you're dealing with someone on the other end of a gun pointed at you with that capability. So I just want people to understand that, you know, the fear is real and it's real for many reasons. And it's not because everybody walks in and says, oh, all police officers. No, there are a lot of, uh, I, I would always go f as far as to say there are more good police officers than bad. But even police officers must recognize that amongst themselves that they are um, bad apples who are capable of, making a lot of the population have fear of, 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 you know, police officers across the world, across the country, the world in totality because of maybe one experience and that experience spreads to other people and, and people feel that kind of fear. Anyway, um, that was not my, you know, real intention of this. Like I said, I'm looking through headlines, uh, <clears throat> um, and then, you know, <laughs> I'm looking through headlines and as I'm scrolling down here, uh, as, as I'm about to leave that topic, another headline pops up that says, former NYPD cop who beat suspect in 2010 pleads guilty to running international drug trafficking ring. So again, we're all people. People are capable of anything. And on either side of the coin, we should not rush to judgment when someone talks about fear or someone um, expresses a scenario that that they, that occurred with a police officer. A lot of times, if you look at the the color of the person, the complainant, you automatically you know you know not on their side, and you know that should not be the case. We have to learn to be impartial and look at each other as human beings and understand that scenarios that occur are real and fears are real. Um, moving on, I see another article here, and and this one is also very troublesome to me. It says, Boy 13 shoots and wounds Snapchat rival, also 13, in the Bronx playground. Now, the good thing is that the mom of the suspect saw his wanted poster and turned him in. But let's, let's wrap our heads around this for a moment. What were the, two, the first two things I said? Boy 
13 years old. Now, I don't know what you were doing. You know, a lot of my listeners are, are, are around my age, or I'm not sure, actually, so I shouldn't uh, say that. But at 13 years old, I didn't even know what a gun looked like on, other than on TV. I'd never seen one in real life. And I certainly, you know, simply won't have the heart. I would never be that bold at 13 years old to shoot someone. I mean, and yet let shoot another 13-year-old boy, you know, actually want to shoot and kill someone. You got to understand where the generation after generation after generation is going here. When a 13-year-old boy feels that he, he's grown up in such an environment and is so conditioned that a rivalry, and, I'm, and, I, and I, I actually should uh, touch the subject here to see, maybe they'll say what it's over, but... Um, Let's see here if it says uh, a 13-year-old boy wanted after shooting a rival the same age over Snapchat feud. His mother turned him in. The two boys had been sparring in messages to each other. Okay, so I'm not even sure um, what the argument was about. But, I mean, it got to be, I can't be the only person who sees, you know, how wrong this is, how, how, how much in the wrong direction we're going generation after generation. You know, anyone who takes the life of another person with a firearm, and I'm not saying there aren't, and I'm going to say this carefully, I'm not saying there aren't a few justified um, instances, meaning, you know, you're, you're protecting your children or your family from someone who you know, you're, you're a licensed firearm person and someone else, you know, some, some perpetrator, you know, attacks your family and it's, it, you know, the danger is imminent because I'll tell you this much, even in, 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 in most of the um, jurisdictions, and even in New York, um, I think there are three instances where, I don't get me wrong, I try to remember now, at least in New York City, there are three instances where you're not held to equal and opposite deadly force. One is arson. So if someone is, you, you know, it, you, 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 and it's very strange because um, you, you know, your, your, your domain is not necessarily your sanctuary, but let's, let's just make it absurd and say, you know, if someone's in your home and you catch them and they're, they're not, you know, they're lighting a fire to burn your home down, you can shoot them. Um, forcible rape, you can shoot them. And I think the third one is, you know, equal and opposite force. So if someone pulls a gun on you um, in your home, because especially in New York City, you know, the, the Castle Doctrine, you know, is, is still a, a gray area there. But if someone in your home, um, and then, you know, it's still a, maybe a gray area if it's, you know, a 100-year-old lady with a gun, you know, it might, they might not consider it equal and opposite for a six foot, 300 pound man. But anyway, and I say those things just to say that there's a lot of great area with, um, you know, with what's seen as justified or not. But the point is, those are the three things, arson, forcible rape, and equal and opposite force where you're threatened, you know, imminent uh, threat with a, with a firearm, you know. And so even then, I can imagine if you if you had to defend yourself in that scenario, you're gonna go through the stages of shock and you and it's gonna be traumatic. 
So to imagine a 13-year-old having a, a verbal argument, not even on the phone, on Snapchat, and then going out and shooting the other kid, you know, something is really wrong in society, in, in, in the next generations. And, and what's even worse about it is I'm not sure that we're not in all in a certain way from older generations, not you know, culpable to a certain extent, because I see a lot of um, talk from a lot of politicians, et cetera, about the crime on the streets and bringing crime down and all that. But I don't think anybody is looking towards the root of the problem. And I think that this ties back to even things like the Black Lives Matter movement, et cetera, because I think what they're trying to say to at times is you, you need to address the root of the problem. You can't just put a Band-Aid on it and, 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 and appease some people, which, is, which politicians tend to do for a short period of time, and then things just go back to the way they were. Actually, they get worse. And I think that many of us who, you know, who are a certain age group um, can't, just can't relate to a 13-year-old shooting another 13-year-old, and that's something that we never even heard of, or, you know, never had, you know, never knew anyone that, that in, in our generation who had a firearm at 13 years old, could get hold of a firearm at 13 years old, and then would have the, be bold enough to shoot another 13 year old, you know, over an argument, you know, and, and you know, if, I guess if you could aim better, I'm, I'm pretty sure that whatever anger the fester in him, you know, he wasn't going for the, for the wound, or wounding the guy, which is actually what happened. He was probably going for the kill. And then you have to think about, I think about two weeks ago in another Bronx playground somewhere in New York or somewhere else in New York, a 16-year-old girl or something was shot and killed by a stray bullet over two young 16-year-old boys shooting at each other. I mean, you can't take, you, 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 you're, you create playgrounds where kids can come together and have social interaction and do something positive and, they, and, and you send your 16-year-old daughter out to, to an environment that you thought she'd be safe in and she comes back in a body bag. These are not things being addressed by our politicians. I'm sorry. They're, they are caught up in always, you know, what's, what's most important to their ratings and what's most important to the people who are supplying money for their campaigns. And, you know, they, they, and, and they put a little bandaid on, on to appease the people and, and, you know, they do a little extra around election time so they, they get reelected. And, and, and even though we want to blame ourselves sometimes and say, you know, well, we elected them. I mean, sometimes, or most times, as far as I can remember, we kind of had a choice between, you know, bad and worse. And those are two candidates we pick from. Um, and I'm going to, you know, I'm, I'm going to sort of use that as a segue into another part of my thoughts. And again, I said this won't be a long podcast, but just a few things. You've heard me talk about, and I'm going to bring it up again. It, I usually end my, my in the news with it, but I'm going to put it in the middle today. Maybe, I don't know, maybe someone else will, if someone will eventually move this to, to an arena where it makes a difference. I'm going to talk, every time I talk about in the news segment, I'm going to talk about student loans and I'm going to keep talking about that. I noticed the other day I got an email from change.org and they're pushing the issue too. One of the things it said, the headline says, you know, um, Democrats are alarmed that President Biden's ratings are dropping that low. Well, even though the majority of people support his infrastructure 
plan. It is the just the inherent makeup of the Democratic Party that just simply they don't have the. I don't know what you, what they're missing, though. They they just can't seem to get their act together enough to do what it takes to get things passed. And I say that because I don't see the same weaknesses in the Republican Party. I don't see, um, and I'm not you know claiming any party here. Like I said, I wish I could be totally independent because I'm tired of the Democratic and Republican thing where it's one extreme or the other. There's no nothing down the middle. There's no balance between the two. But, you know, staying on topic, a lot, I, I, as, I, as I keep talking about student loans and, I, and things pop up about student loans, I'm realizing that this is gaining momentum and energy behind it. The White House, and I, re, I repeat it for those who didn't hear it said before and those who, you know, didn't know. The White House came out after... Um, pausing student loans for several times during the pandemic and said January 31st is when, it, when, when the repayments start or the payments start and they're no longer extending it. They will not be extending it. And the first thing I said when they said that was that was an irresponsible and careless statement to come out of a place like Dakar White House. Why? Because unless they're God... They don't know what we're going to look like in January 31st, vaccine or not. And to say that to the people that you're supposed to care about means that you're basically saying, look, suppose we have another variant. Suppose everything is shut down. I don't care about you because I'm telling you that come January 31st, 2022, you're going to start paying your student loans. Now, I'm sure that if something like that, you know, God forbid something like that happened, that wouldn't be the case. But the fact that they felt that they could, they, they could come out and make that statement kind of shows that the, the, the lack of, I don't know what it is, that's, that, that's, there's something missing. Because they could have said, look, January 31st, 2022 is our planned uh, date to end the pause on the repayment of student loans and barring any unforeseen circumstances, we intend to go forward. That's the language they should use. Because at some point you have to show me as, 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 as the governing body, as our president, as the press from coming from the president's office, that you care about me. And I'm saying that to say this. We had an unprecedented election. I think President Biden ended up getting something like 82 million votes or something like that. This is the last number I think I heard. And yet his ratings are tanking. And he doesn't get it yet that his ratings are tanking because there are big issues like these that he's not addressing. There are promises he made that he's not keeping. And the thing about it is he seems to think that, you know, the infrastructure plan and this and that, Will will win over the hearts of uh, and the support of the American people to reelect him or to even support him on this term. The problem is that we are tired, and I speak to a lot of different people. The beauty about having a podcast is discussion and conversation. And I speak to a lot of people, and they and they say the same thing. You know. They don't get it. Politicians in the White House and in Congress, they don't get. What's important to us as people? So you, you know, let, let's break it down, make it really simple. You get this infrastructure plan, you build a new highway. 
And then at some point real soon, you're going to say, no, we got to pay for this highway. So you're going to put tolls or something that's going to, that, that is going to make life harder for us. You're going to add taxes to gas and all these things that's going to make life half, harder for us. And, you know, it seems to be this, this, this big mathematical algorithm or something that the average person is not supposed to understand. But I'll break it down into simple terms. We almost need to hit the reset button on the economy, on, on, on politics, on the way we treat people, on the way life is going forward as the world around us changes, whether we like it or not. It is criminal to me to make deals with foreign governments to fill C-100 uh, planes, transport military planes, full of brand new printed cash. And send it abroad. I'm talking about 300 million, 500 million. I mean, things that I've heard. These are actual you know, soldiers who've sat and guarded this money. Ship it abroad. But you will tell your people that it will be catastrophe if you were to do something to help when it's millions of people like helping with student loans. So that people, and, and you know, it, it, is, it is a shame when you're in the richest country in the world and you have people losing their homes over student loans and let's let's and i'm gonna i'm gonna keep harping on this because the you know majority of cases all the cases i've heard about about people who've lost their homes they sold their homes they moved back with their parents all sorts of nonsense over having to pay for student loans is not because they've been careless or irresponsible it is simply because when they finish getting the degrees or whatever Either the job isn't there or the degree they got is not worth the paper it was printed on. Not because the person, the student didn't do their job, but because all these universities, most of them or many of them are taking advantage of a system of, of guaranteed federal funds, education funds. And, and these universities are getting paid so they don't care. I mentioned a while ago, and I had a conversation for those of you who follow the podcast with Larry Sharp, who was the 2018 gubernatorial libertarian um, party candidate for New York. And one of the things he said, and it's just sticking with me, is, you know, if you made the universities hold the note, if, you, if the federal government said to them, look, for whatever degree, let's say it's $100,000, you're going to give this student this degree. Once, as long as they get the, the GPA and whatever, fine. Then you're going to set up a, an office within your university or whatever and work with companies and corporations to place this person. You're going to show us the successful ability to place this person in a job that allows them the ability to, that's equal to the value of the degree they got so that they can afford to live and pay back this degree. Now, if the person gets the job and then gets fired on their own, that's their business. But that's not what most of us do. Most of us go jobs, sometimes two, three jobs, struggling to pay back student loans. You can't, you know, to, to and it's 30 years, understand something, student loans are that kind of, you know, when you get uh, uh, 100,000, 200,000, 300,000, it's a 30-year payback period. So you can't say, well, I'll, you know what, I'll pause and I won't have a family. I'll, I'll wait till I pay back my student loans to have a family. You can't do any of that. 
So the bottom line here is you're stuck in a situation where you can't live. You can't enjoy any part of the American dream because now you've got me with a $1,500 a month student loan payment on a job that's making $80,000 a year or $60,000 or $50,000 a year. I mean, I, I know of a situation right now of someone who went to university who got a master's in healthcare administration in a country that is under a pandemic who has sent out over 2,000, I'm sorry, I correct, forgive me for that, I mean, 200 almost resumes who, who was a foreign doctor. So they're, even though they're not qualified here as a doctor, they were an MD in another country. They came here um, didn't follow in that path because the, the path for a foreign doctor to, to make it here is not only crowded, but it, they make it next to impossible. And I, I went through that whole speed on another podcast. I'm not going to do it again, but now they have a master's in healthcare administration. They work in a hospital and they work part-time. The jobs in the hospitals are given to people's friends. And in an industry where you would think the healthcare industry, as long as you qualify, there's a job for you, they can't even get a job that gives them enough income to pay back uh, 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 eighty dollars or $90,000 student loan. What is wrong with this society? So Larry Sharp came up with, you know, what I thought was a brilliant idea, at least me, you can disagree. And he said, hey, you know, the first thing President Biden needs to do is stick to his promise, but he needs to go a step forward. He needs uh, further. He needs to forgive 50% of all student loans and then allow the students to renegotiate the terms of the remaining 50. So you're giving them a break without a free pass. Then anyone who has paid off their student loans within the last whatever period you decide that makes sense, you give them a you know, tax break for X amount of years. But crying out loud, we can afford it. You know, I, I mean, these things like, you know, right now I think the president is waiting to sign something to increase the debt ceiling. This is all people playing with our lives, people. This is all what I call funny money. It is not, I mean, you don't want inflation. You want, you want to devalue the dollar, but you don't want to mess the lives of people up either. I cannot see, if you can print $300, $500 million to give to another country as a, as a goodwill offering, how about you give your own citizens, your own people who are working and living in America that make this country great, how about you give them a goodwill offer? There are enough people that I know from looking at my dashboard all over the country, all over the world that hear this podcast. And it's thousands of people. There has to be someone in my audience who has a path, an avenue an, to someone else or whatever the case may be that eventually we can get someone in Congress or White House to listen. Because we are, we are stepping closer and closer to disaster. And if the Democrats think that this is not going to kick pe good hard-working Americans in the face, they're wrong. Come January 2022, the financial recovery from the pandemic is not going to be there yet. What do these people do? You're giving me a choice between paying my student loans or getting my check 
uh, garnished and can't afford my mortgage, getting kicked out of my house, have to figure out where my family's going to live. How do I feed my children? How do I keep my children just happy in America as young children growing up that they don't have to face and see this kind of struggle for no reason? I'm not talking about people who quit their jobs here. I'm talking, and that's easy to find out. I'm talking about hardworking people who have been in their job 20, 30 years, who have gone step by step, who have great attendance, great productivity, and through many things, including systemic racism, still cannot reach their ceiling or reach enough money, or reach enough, a high enough salary that they can survive, that they can pay back these student loans. And again, I said, pay back student loans for a degree that's not worth the paper it's printed on. You want to hold people who owe student loans accountable, but you don't want to own all these universities accountable? You want to tell me that, you know, I want to go to university, I don't have a, a grant, I want a good degree, so I choose a halfway decent university, but what, what comes along with that is the tuition is higher, so I borrowed the money and guaranteed student loan, figuring that like it's a half-decent university, so when I finish, I get a half-decent job, I come out, I get a job that underpays me by, you know, tens of thousands, so I can't pay back the student loan. The university walks away smiling to the bank, and the student after student after student after student suffers. Anyone out there who feels the same, anyone out there who, who, who wants to take up the mantle and take up this challenge, Anyone out there who just simply wants to spread the word, put it on your, and I'm not asking for this a publicity in my podcast. I mean, I've been blessed enough that as I reach out to help people, people have come and volunteered to be guests on my show um, weekly. So this is not a publicity stunt. This is, we need to change the mindset of Washington. We need these politicians to begin to understand that we, when we elect them, they work for us. Yes, they get the perks. Yes, they get the power. Yes, they get the protection, the Secret Service, all that crap. But we keep going down this cycle of politician after politician who doesn't care. They don't care anything about us. They get up in their own little cliques once they get at the top there and they and their fancy lives. And as elections roll around, they you know they come out with all this great talk of what they're gonna do. And then they don't do it. And then re-election comes and we are faced with choosing the bad or the worse. So we choose the bad. And when we choose the bad and the bad wins, he thinks that he has the, because he got the popular vote or whatever he feels, well, you know, they like me. No, we didn't really like you. We just had no other choice. We chose the, worst, the better of two evils or what we felt was the better of two evils. And sometimes even we get that wrong. Anyway, um, this is going much longer than I thought, so I'm going to touch on my last topic of in the news here. And I changed the order up, like I said, because I didn't want to finish with two loans tonight like I usually do. I, my last uh, in the news topic I want to talk about is vaccine mandates from a different perspective tonight. And it's more of curiosity than anything else. So I'm looking at, you know, we talked about vaccine mandates before, and we talked about the fact that if you, you know, maybe if they had gone about it by, like, telling people, the benefits of the vaccine. People are opening their eyes and seeing how many people died. And the vaccine is the alternative. Maybe people will be less resistive to it. But you have a situation where you have a population of people who simply don't trust government. And they don't trust the fact that 
how the vaccine was developed. And, and let me just touch on that real quick. I keep hearing it over and over again. I understand it. We have vaccinations from over years of time that took five, six, seven years to reach the point where they, were, they figured it was okay for humans to be injected with. And we understand that the general, in general and normal times, that's the kind of research and time it takes to, to ensure to the best of the ability that the vaccine is safe. And yet, years later, we've heard of different things where they said, oh, this vaccine um, actually caused this side effect that we were unaware of. So many people are saying, look, you developed this real quick. We understand that. We understand what you had to do. But what are you going to tell me five years from now if I develop a heart condition or I develop something that was caused by this vaccine? You're forcing it down my throat and you're forcing it in a manner that causes automatic resistance. Now, don't get me wrong. Like I said, everybody on my podcast knows I had COVID. It was the worst thing I experienced in my life. I recovered from it. I have the vaccine. I took the vaccine out of fear of getting COVID again because I lived through it. I'm honest to say that I didn't really consider all these other things about what happens five or 10 years from now. I, I simply considered the, the, the now and the fact that I can't go through that again. That I can't catch that because I'm out and about and I don't want to bring it to my children. I'm one of those parents who will likely have their children vaccinated when it comes out. That's a different debate, and I'll debate anybody about that, and I won't call anybody wrong by saying they will not do that to their kids because maybe their decision is right and mine is wrong. I'm just living in the now right now and doing what I think is right. But that's not really what I'm going to focus on for these last couple of minutes. What, 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 what I find astonishing is, and you can also email me and tell me if you, don't, if you agree or disagree. People were given ultimatums all across the country, in all different industries. And across the country, I think in totality, several million people chose to give up their jobs rather than take the vaccination. I would love to know who these people are. Not because I have a problem with what they did. I'm just curious as heck as to how they can afford to do that. I mean, if, you, if I said tomorrow I was not taking the vaccine and my job said, you take this vaccine or you're fired, I would, I would voice my concerns, but I'm going to have to take the needle because I can't afford to lose my job and just walk away. Unemployment's not going to me, help me pay my mortgage. My family's not going to survive with me just losing my job. And, and, and finding another one in an environment where more and more companies are, are, are implementing vaccine mandates makes it very difficult. Unless you're one of those lucky people who finds a remote job, um, and those are, they're plentiful out there, but they're becoming less and less now because people are moving over to that way of life, not just because of the mandate, but because of better quality of life it gives you. Um, I'm just curious as to who these people are. I mean, it's amazing that the numbers in the millions, it kind of says to me initially, well, there are millions of people working out there who don't have to work. Kudos to you, however you do it. I'd like to know the secret. Um, but also, you know, 
employers should consider wherever possible allowing remote work. Even, in, even if it's in a hybrid mode where you go into the office only when you have to on one or two days a week or a few days a month because in most industries during the pandemic, you know, statistics show that productivity went up for most businesses, but also it's just such a better quality of life. If productivity went up, if you're not hurting, if your business is not hurting by someone being remote and you realize that this person's get your, your staff is happier, they're getting to spend more time with their family, they're getting to save a little bit more money because they're not spending so much money on transportation, they're healthier because they're not getting less sleep because they got to wake up at five o'clock in the morning to go to work, Okay. You need, again, we come back to politicians and, you know, them making decisions and working with the, the communities to see, to evolve. To, you know, we, we hire, we elect politicians to, to think outside the box so that we don't have to do it. That's their job. Come up with ways where any businesses excel that will be impacted by less people going into a certain area have other avenues to, to, to branch out, to, to ev- have their businesses evolve so that they too can prosper. But again, my big thing on this podcast was how do you people afford to say, I'm not taking the injection, go ahead and fire me. I don't care. That must be a beautiful feeling. <laughs> All right, so I'm coming up on uh, the end of this podcast. There are a few other things I wanted to mention, but I got a little long-winded on the student loan thing because I'm going to keep stressing it every time I do an in the news and hope that someone listens. And I'm hoping that um, at some point, you know, people will say, well, you know what? It makes sense. Let's, you know, let's join this effort. Um, I'd like to know too, you can send me an email and tell me, what your thoughts are about the vaccination for kids five to, I think they're going out, they're going to approve five to 12, at least for Pfizer. And what do you think about it? And you know, how many of you will, will likely, you know, give it to your, allow your kids to have it and, and not. And if there's enough interest and there's a bigger discussion on, you know, an email or whatever, I can certainly do an episode on it and maybe bring on a guest who has um, an educated, um, position on it that we can debate again i'm going to plead to any one of you or any of you who's listening this who has the ability to get this student loan argument up to a higher level it's going to become a crisis you know and and, oh one last thing i gotta touch on that i think is very important here we hear politicians coming down on people and saying you know what employers are 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 can't find staff. They can't find employees. So they're equating that to mean either people are got lazy on unemployment or people don't want to work. So they're, they're blaming people because there are so many jobs out there. They're claiming are not enough people applying for the jobs. But has anyone done a study to see if this is, yeah, you know, it's happening in certain industries only. I'm only asking that because, you know, think about it for a second. If I was, a, say, a restaurant worker and I lost my job during the pandemic and I had to survive, I had bills to pay, I have whatever, I could go on unemployment, but I had to recognize that that's going to come to an end. 
Maybe I took the time to do an online course, to learn programming, to learn something else. And now I'm looking for a job in a new industry. And maybe a lot of people recognize the vulnerabilities of the industries that they were in and sort of migrated towards something else. Then there's another part of the population, I know a few people like this, who were past retirement age. They loved coming to work where they, you know, I'm not talking about way past. I mean, you know, they were probably 63 years old, 64, whatever the case may be, 58 if they get retired earlier. And they decided to stay on because it was something to do. They're making a decent income. They're making a difference. And the pandemic made them say, I don't want to do this anymore. I know even on my job, there's so many people that retired. It's, it's, it's ridiculous. So, you know, when you, when you, when collectively you have to look at this whole situation to really make a, you know, pronounce that you, you know, that uh, what the dynamic is that has this such a shortage, truck drivers, for gas tankers, they're saying, you know, we can't get the gas to, and they're blaming all this nonsense too. I mean, the oil that used to be what, 50 something or whatever dollars a barrel is like 70 something or 80 something or 100 something, whatever. They're squeezing us from every direction. And then they're talking about shortages because we can't get, you know, truck drivers to bring the, the, the oil in, the tankers in. Well, where'd the truck drivers go? And I'm gonna tell you what I think. So we have to be realistic. Some of those truck drivers who travel from state to state and mingle with people to people, maybe we need to check to see actually how many of them died from COVID. How many of them got sick from COVID? Okay, How many of them, when things got shut down, looked for a different line of work to be home with their families? How many of them have a spouse that died from COVID and so they could no longer be a truck driver on the road and needed to find a different job because... They need to take care of the kids because the, the other parent is gone. So, I mean, you know, we, we, I hate the fact of how the news and, and all these things are manipulated to, to sort of try to steer our thinking into one direction. When we, we've taken the human factor out of this and we don't take the time to recognize that there's so many different scenarios here. It's easy for people to make a pronunciation and say, you know what, you know, you, you need to get back to work. We're going to cut this on the farm because, you know, there's, there's 10,000 empty jobs in the restaurant industry and nobody's taking them. Guess what? Suppose there's um, someone who did lose their job and they could possibly fit in the restaurant industry. But the jobs in the restaurant industry don't pay enough for them to pay back their student loans and to live. Let's tie it together. So you expecting me to go take that job in the restaurant industry? Or you expecting me to, to, to go look elsewhere for something that's going to give me a better chance of a survival? And I got to look for that chance because the same government that's telling me this is not helping me. The promises are not being kept. And whether, whether you're a Democrat, Republican, in, independent, libertarian, whatever you are, come, come another three years, there's an election again. And the same people who are poor, who have the opportunity to do something unprecedented now to help us are going to be looking for our vote and they'll be telling us, well, the other guy is worse. But I can understand why people decide to give the other guy a chance, even though there may be things they don't like about the other candidate because this one has failed us. You know, people, have, people can feel anywhere they want to feel about what we call Obamacare. But the fact of the matter is, one thing I would give him credit, and I, you know, there are policies of President Obama I didn't agree with, but the fact of the matter is that 
one thing he did do was set forth to make an unprecedented change in the effort to help people to make sure everybody had health care. It had its caveats, but despite all the criticism, he put it through. He got his two terms in office. Now we ask our current president, you made a commitment to take the burden of student loans off of people, off of people who have who are willing to pay back their student loans, but can't, again, because the degrees they got and the income they get with it make that degree they got not worth the paper that it's printed on. Tell me, Mr. President, what are you going to do? As always, I want to say a very special thank you to all my supporters out there who give me so much encouragement to keep 247 Real Talk going, who express to me how much they enjoy the conversations, my guests, and uh, even my monologues, my in-the-news segments. I'm reminding you that you can listen to this episode and every episode of 247 Real Talk on your favorite podcast app. If you'd like to send me a message, if you'd like to start a debate, if you'd like to leave a comment, if you'd like to send a message to a guest... If you'd like me to hook you up with a guest in the past who provides support structures for you, send me an email at podcast at 247realtalk.net. That's podcast at 247realtalk.net. Until we do this again, do take care of yourselves and each other.